For every successful creator project, there's an equal and opposite one that didn't happen. A sort of parallel universe of possibility that only its creator will ever know about, until now. And I'll be your guide as we speak with artists and innovators about the forking paths and roads less traveled that led to their creative breakthroughs. It's the intersection of possibility, where what-ifs and why-nots collide. Some on the cutting edge, others on the cutting room floor. It's a place I like to call The Bleed. Conversations with creative entrepreneurs on the cutting edge. I'm your host, Daedalus Howell, and today I'm talking with Erica De La Cruz, a mini megaboss best-selling author of Passionistas and founder of Passion to Paycheck, the lifestyle conference and community. She was called a millennial to watch by the California State Senate, and she has an amazing story to tell about surviving economic hardship turning it around and building her own empire. Let's talk with Erica De La Cruz. What a story. I don't even know where we start with becoming a mini mega boss, best-selling author of Passionistas. You're the founder of Passion to Paycheck. It goes on and on. And finally, the California State Senate calls you the millennial to watch. The millennial, not a millennial, but the millennial to watch. I know, right? <laughs> I'm like, put a pronoun? Oh, God. A, the, yeah. Yeah, I guess, uh, what is that, a predicate? I don't know. (laughs) I know. I should have really dove into that English course however many years ago. (laughs) It's a definite article. That's what it is. There we go. Yeah, there we go. So let's start with your story. I mean, like, it's kind of a profound narrative, right? Beginning with what happened to you in your very early life in 2008. For a millennial, that's rather young. For the rest of us, that's like <laughs> yesterday. So, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, 2008, I was just graduating high school, going on to college, and then the beautiful economy crash. It was like kind of a slow roll, and then it was really full force around 2009. Do you remember that? Of course. Oh, yeah. No, I had Re-affected. a house. That was, yeah, dude, I had a house that was underwater. I had a media company that collapsed around me. Yeah, it was a nightmare. Oh, wow. See, that doesn't make Okay, great. Yeah, everything was like a little bit collapse around that time. So, yeah, it definitely threw me for a loop, kind of disrupted the life trajectory that I was on before in a great way now. I mean, looking back over 10 years now, it was a really, really great disruption. Right. I just. Wasn't sure if I was completely aware of that at the time. <laughs> well, who did you think you were going to be? How did you think life was going to go, like, we'll say back in 2007, before everything happened? What was the vision then? I mean, to be honest, I feel like I think every single person can relate to high school and feeling so uncertain in whatever area it was for you. You know, the self esteem, the self worth, the boys, the girls, whoever was sort of in your realm of high school life. I think I've always defaulted to being more driven, a little bit more ambitious, but I didn't really hone in on the talents. You know, your parents always tell you, you have such potential, really, really just rein in that potential. And I think it's a perfect example that I did. I had so much potential and I was kind of running at bare minimum, which was great because naturally I was achieving. I had gotten into a pretty great college, but I wasn't really striving for too much. So I think I really just went in with no plan. I was probably going to float through college. I joined a sorority immediately. (laughs) You know the term basic? I feel like I was just so basic at the time. (laughs) I was like basic. Kind of like on cultural autopilot, right? Just doing the thing that gets done, right? I mean... Yeah, exactly. That's a really, really great term. Cultural autopilot. 
a little bit uncertain, and there was no necessity. There wasn't really a deadline, not too much accountability. I grew up and our family was pretty stable and well off. And I really didn't even have the, oh, got to make the money deadline or accountability for me when I was going to college anyway. I mean, luckily, naturally, I don't know what I had, but naturally, I always wanted a side job. I always wanted to be making my own money, just not exceptionally at the time. <laughs> right. And so you had this stuff baked in, right? This disposition toward having a side hustle, this notion that you wanted to make your own money and definitely capacity if maybe not super achieving yet. And then the record scratch comes, right? And yeah. everything changes all at once. Oh man. When I say all at once, I mean in what would be probably 29 hours or so. Mm. First year of college was ending and I even took a girlfriend back to my hometown because I'm from Northern California. I went to college in Southern California. And, you know, I told the girlfriend, you can stay with me for a week or so. We can hit the pool. My mother had really designed and built our house. It was her like greatest achievement. So I thought that's where I was going back for the summer. And all the communication had been lost because we arrived and there were chains on our doors and our windows. And I remember just being so confused and calling my parents and there were some murmurs. They had told me a little bit about the house being foreclosed. Our business of 30 years had closed probably 10 months earlier when I arrived at college. So I just didn't put two and two together. And wow. Yeah. I think the family was in a state of denial because when you build something for so long and you think you're settled like rest of your life, it doesn't really occur to you that you can actually have it all taken away. So I think the denial left the house intact, nothing packed, no one was ready to move. And then I think it was the next day that officials started coming over and saying, you know, you have about 11 hours to basically just dissect, cut out everything you want from the house has to go. So yeah, the next day was brutal. It was like, I don't know, in my mind, because obviously I grew up there, my, our handprints are everywhere in the house in these little special places that were designed to do that. It felt like a massacre of, <laughs> of my childhood. And uh, we just had to keep going, packing. Everything was kind of shoved into storage units and drills were hauling up the marble that we had owned and kind of put into the house and just taking everything in a day. It was, it was pretty traumatic. Yeah. Yeah. And so you're starting over basically. I mean, you had this hard reset in your life and, and it's not just your life. It's like your entire support network is also yeah. experiencing this, right? Well, right. Yeah, exactly. My father had built a business for 30 years. So he was really lost at that time. He started drinking pretty heavily and then came out of it, luckily, within about eight months. But in that eight month period, I was like, uh, dad, question mark. Uh, and then my mom, who had been so strong, a few friends who are now different friends than the ones we grew up with, started introducing her to camping and living off the land, which led to just taking up in a voluntary homeless community where she was for years and years to this day, she's still voluntarily in the community. So I was really, it was the first time in my life where it was like, okay, here's adulthood. There's no waiting. There's no trust fund anywhere. Figure it out. (laughs) Yeah. So Where do you start? How do you build a life when the life that you thought you had is gone? 
Well, yeah, I feel like it all kind of starts with making the most out of what you have. And I think I was tested. It's fight or flight. And I guess I fought because in town, I still had two really, really close friends and their families. And then I had, you're going to laugh. I came for the summer to break up with my high school sweetheart. I was like, I'm in college now. I don't need this. And so I'll just break it off gently in person. And luckily I waited because he and his family ended up being the home that I would stay in for the rest of the summer. And (laughs) needless to say, the breakup did not happen. So I think it was a little sacrificial. I mean, for a 19 year old who wanted her freedom, I had to sort of, in my mind, at least I had to sacrifice breaking it off for moving in. And uh, yeah, I started there. I started by just loading up this 1993 Honda Accord and having all the clothing that I kind of wanted to have and calling some friends to stay on their couches. And I remember I remember feeling like nothing was really wrong. I kind of just kept going. And I think I was a little bit numb to it for a long, long time. And then one day, my, I guess, boyfriend at the time, his family started unloading my car. And I walked out of the house and I'm like, what are you doing? They said, you know, a lot's going on. We're not going to have your car full anymore. We're just going to put it in our drawers. And it was really moving. So I said, okay, at least I have a few months stay. And then I got my old high school job back at Jamba Juice. And that's great. Oh my God. Yeah. At the moment, it was really great. Like, I feel like we have to wait for midlife crises sometimes to figure out what we're made of or who we want to be. And at the time... Now I'm so proud of myself. I don't think I was proud of myself then. I don't know if I was aware of what was going on. But yeah, I just went into the... It's such a soap opera tale. In high school, the high school sweetheart I was dating, I convinced him to get a job at Jamba Juice with me. So fast forward a year later, I come back from college and he's like the daytime manager. So they didn't (laughs) want to give me the job because they knew that we were dating. And they're like, well, we can't really have you working under the person you were seeing. And I I remember just taking the general manager and being like, I don't care if you put me on all night. I want to be working here. I'm going to do the best job that you could ever... Like whatever that Hail Mary speech was, (laughs) I gave it. (laughs) They were like, all right, give the girl a job. And so I just sort of started working and Googling, like Googling, Googling, Googling how the heck I could get back to school with no money, really. <laughs> yeah, that was my next question. So you've got a little bit of stability. You've got a place to stay. You've got an income, right? But it's Jamba Juice. So it's not like it's going to pay all your tuition, right? <laughs> God bless Jamba Juice. No, <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. It wasn't anywhere near. It was just basic necessities, which at the time was getting my 1993 Honda Accord to take me back to California. So I invested it all in figuring out if the car was going to run for me. And so... I think I just started researching and Googling and calling people I knew. So I felt like, well, I know an uncle and he seems to be really successful in business. Maybe he can help me figure out how to navigate this. And then my high school sweetheart's parents who... So ironically, they're such they're the best things in my life. They've met my now husband who's not my high school sweetheart. <laughs> They've just been so... So great. They would sit with me at night and kind of check in. They didn't really insert themselves into my life as much as they checked in with the bare necessities. And I found scholarships and grants that I could apply for 
for the time being, I kind of had to pay it back. So I guess it would be more of a loan, but they called it a grant. I don't really remember, Mm -hmm. but it was enough to get me re-enrolled. And I think some of that was taken care of. If I remember right before we lost the house, somehow, because my mother was so incredible, she would have paid that first semester off or something along those lines. So I could go back and then... Well, let me ask you, why did you hold on to the dream of college so fiercely? I mean, a lot of people in your position at that moment would just say, well, I guess I'm at Jamba Juice now and that's going to be life, right? But you had this vision that you had to go back. I mean, where did you get that drive? Wow, I've never been asked that before. I never really... I know my instinct is, oh, I would never stay in town. Yeah, why did I have that instinct? I think that I saw a bigger city. I'm from a really small town. I got a taste of a bigger city and some really strong friendships there Mm -hmm. and a social life. Honestly, a social life that for at least one year, I knew some people, there was a community built and I found that it was access to really what I wanted to do, which at the time, even then, I was like, I want to do something big, something good for people, something in entertainment. And I saw that those avenues would be in that city. And so it's funny because when we lost everything, Mm It almost provided the freedom of, oh, now there's really nothing to lose. (laughs) And now I really have nothing to tie me down or use as a crutch. So there was no doubt I was definitely going back to (laughs) to the big city. And I just kind of equated getting an education and honestly getting internships with being a student. And I wanted these weird unpaid internships that these sorority girls and their moms were paying for, you know, so they could get these free entertainment internships. And I'm like, okay, how am I going to do this? So I just felt like the gold mine was back behind me in college and I needed to get back there. Yeah. And college, besides an education, of course, is really an opportunity to create those networks and relationships that you're going to leverage throughout your career, right? That is it. That is exactly it. Is I saw people and departments at the school that offered other avenues And people who knew other people. It was my first taste of the working world and who you know type thing was college, I guess. And so let's fast forward. So you get through school, right? Yeah. And congrats. You know, that was hard to do. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) And what's the next step for you at that point? Because you don't have the same kind of resources like the other sorority girls with their moms that are going to pay for their lifestyles while they're... Oh, you have no idea. I would get invited (laughs) on... Oh, I would get invited to Aspen and all these places <laughs> because I did still have the social groups and the communities. And I'm like, how are you guys going to all of these places? So I started with this little goal of getting a MacBook Pro because at the time, not everyone had a laptop. And I saw these, what I would deem these wealthy girls with their MacBook Pros in the library. And at the time, I would have to use the library computers and I had my little notebook. So I set the first goal of... How do I get this laptop? And then I really, really went to the departments and went to these head of the departments, these teachers, professors, and said, what's available? I've heard about scholarships and I know you don't just have to play a sport to do them. And sure enough, I was so floored. There were so many different scholarships that you could apply for. And the crazy, crazy part of this is it was available to the entire student body, probably. <laughs> and you would have like 18 submissions. So I hunkered down in the library nightly, skipped all those themed costume parties. And 
I kind of just wrote my life away in scholarship essays, which eventually, not at first, I transferred to a new Jamba Juice in San Diego where I was in college. (laughs) But after a few months, I did get a housing scholarship. And that housing scholarship was everything because the biggest tab on a college student's bill is their housing and their rent. And so that was really just fabulous. I really just worked my ass off. I didn't at the time feel like that. But now looking back, people from college will be like, man, you always worked so hard. I always felt so weird when I was so hungover talking to you about (laughs) being in the library. And mind you, I did go to a few parties, but I was like, okay, new life goals. I got to figure this out. Yeah. What I love about your story at this juncture is that you had the savviness to ask. I don't think a lot of people ask enough questions about what is available to them, right? Yeah. And I learned that because right when we had lost the house, I felt this vulnerability. And then I felt, man, it's been with me ever since. But when we lost the place and I had nothing, I just asked my friends who asked their parents, man, I just really realized, whoa, I, I actually have everything that I need. It's every single thing I need is communication with other people and Mm -hmm. the route is going to open up. And I think that a lot of people think it's cliche or they see memes that say, don't do it alone. And I experienced it. So luckily it didn't become a cliche meme for me. It's like my living, breathing truth now. (laughs) And so you graduate, then what? I mean, now you're sort of in this position that a lot of people find themselves in. It's like, well, what next? How do I get to where I wanna go? Yeah. Well, the part two is after I got the scholarships in the first two years of college or second year, it then allowed me to go for gold and get these like entertainment production broadcasting internships that paid next to nothing because I had the scholarships. And I more than ever was so motivated because I kept feeling like if I could be as big as I wanted to be... I felt this calling and I can't describe it, but it was a deep sight knowing that if I did the things and was as big and reached the potential I knew I could, I could go help my mom or talk to my little sister who had run away. She was so rebellious. She was 17 and she just ran away and peaced out. And I got a lot of calls, especially when my dad came to of like, go rescue your family and in college. But I just had this like divine knowing of, I would probably drown. And so I needed to reach that, what I called potential or dreams to be in a place to be able to go back and help my family. So ironically, one week after graduating, I became the youngest ever promotions director for Entercom Broadcasting in San Diego. And it was at this divine intersection of them not wanting to break the bank or the budget on a new director, but also wanting someone who understood Twitter at the time. (laughs) I really didn't understand what I had gotten myself into. But it was within three weeks of graduating, I was kind of just moving my stuff into a corner office at Entercom. And I had a lot of people quitting around me and rioting. And it was because this 22, 23 year old girl was coming into this department head position. And I really didn't know what that meant. Now I know what that means. But I basically had an internship with the company beforehand. And I just showed up at 5am. I just showed up. And so when this position became available, they were like, 
what if we considered someone out of the box and younger for this role, which I eventually took. So I love the idea that quote just showed up, just showing up. I mean, that's like a huge part of everything. Just being there, being obvious and inevitable, you know, in some ways. Exactly. Being inevitable. And then it did not feel like that. It just felt like going about my everyday life. But looking back, I guess, yeah, I did make the extra effort. And now I can place to acknowledge that. But for so long, I still didn't think I was doing enough then. And I think it's important because people feel like they'll feel this magic when they know they're onto something. Right. And I think you really can look back and see the magic when you're distanced from it enough to be able to. That's interesting. I know what you're saying. People do feel like if they're not feeling the magic right then, then they're not on the right track. But in fact, maybe the magic is something you only see in retrospect. Absolutely. And appreciate in retrospect. I mean, yeah, just this appreciation for it. Mind you, I did have like an on-air shift in the mornings I got to keep, but most of it was so marketing and corporate that it really led me to realize, oh, this isn't for me. I don't want to be employed. I'm pretty much unemployable at this point. And uh, that was a great lesson too. And you've seen your parents succeed as entrepreneurs. They had their own business for 30 years. So putting together your next step, how did you synthesize going from the corporate job, which was a great and amazing and and obviously inspired envy among your colleagues? (laughs) (laughs) It was like, man, people were jumping out of windows. And I was so so looking, I was like so sweet and oblivious. And I was going up to the same people who had just put in their two weeks notice and saying, thank you so much for all of your help to get me here. <laughs> I just was so oblivious. But so yeah, they're quitting because they're like pissed. Eight, pissed. They're, they're ageist. They're sexist. They're yes. probably racist. <laughs> yeah. what's, what's their deal? I'm, I mean, I mean what, I'll tell you, the company did make a snafu, a little bit of one. And the GM and the president of the company did come to me and say, any backlash, Erica, know that it was our fault. We should have opened up. They just assured me, look, the outcome would not have been different. But what they didn't do was they didn't open it up publicly for anyone to apply. They just took a handful of candidates that they had their eye on and had these interviews. And it was more than just me, but they didn't open it up so publicly that even the intern coordinator could apply type thing. So they were just, everyone was so upset. And yes, it had a lot to do with me being this girl who, and I just err on the side of optimism and positivity. And so I think it honestly annoys a lot of people when you're that happy. This I still face to this day, but sometimes it's like, are you kidding? Like this girl, and nobody really knew my story there. Mm -hmm. No one knew anything. So for all they knew, I was going to ask men on my parents' dime and came from a sorority into their boss. So I don't know. Right. That, that you're this child of privilege or something. So you just got the job because you felt entitled to it. Whereas oh, you actually gosh. worked your ass off to get there. And that was recognized. Yeah. Yeah. And the ironic part is the pivot from radio and the corporate world to my own brand and business was really speaking in radio on the air sponsors almost like buy your slot. They really like you as a personality. They'll buy your time slot. And this Girls World Conference said, oh, we want to align with her show. And they invited me in and I was paid to speak to all these girls. And they started asking really personal questions while I was still corporate. And answering them just lit me up. And that little speaking gig, it was filmed. And so obviously I shared it and it led to a lot more speaking gigs, if you will. And I was speaking on corporate 
world, being a boss, like a young one. So I had some authority and it was people wanted to listen to me. But then this one talk I gave, they said, we don't want to know anything about your corporate life. We want you to formulate a Sue talk, which is like a female equivalent of a TED talk. And just tell us about a struggle. And I finally shared my story for the first time. And that little talk led not only my colleagues who were working with me at the time to have just this newfound relation to me, (laughs) but uh, my business partner and the person who would go on to publish my book saw that talk later online. And then I really realized like, whoa, I was holding all of this stuff back about losing everything and how I kind of had a screwed up family life in my mind and eyes. And really, that was the key to connecting with people and doing the thing that I wanted to be doing. So it was fascinating. <laughs> yeah, I think that's great. And that you it was your own story that really set the stage for your career. At yeah, this point. it wasn't any salary or health benefit did job brag. It was like, hey, lived in this little pseudo house with roaches. And I was just making a plan to have this life of lux in that little house with no power. That is what moved the needle was my real just self-expression. And now you're in this new place and you're a best-selling author and you're part of a vast community of entrepreneurs and people turn to you and you're a mentor now. It's so crazy. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's wonderful. So what do you tell people? How do you convey your enthusiasm and your drive and ignite that impulse in others? I feel like after the book came out, I started to coach because there was a demand for it because people had read the book and it led to the Passion of Paycheck, which is the online community we have and the annual event here in Los Angeles. And so many girls, they're just, why them? Like, why them? Why me? Who do I think I am? And I am really just an advocate of it is your every single day, these little things that build up to a bigger dream. It's not, oh, you're going to get the Today Show and the next morning, your life is going to change. Like I tell them, I've been there. I've gotten that. You're not waiting for someone to call on you for you to be somewhere. You have to build this sustainable brand, business, life, whatever it is you want to build for yourself every single day. And I promise you at these incremental times, months later, like we said, you might not feel this magic, but you'll look back and say, whoa, I'm playing in a way bigger field now. I can do this. Anything is possible. And a lot of people conform to societal norms that the safe jobs with the salaries are the best sort of secure net for them. But as we're seeing in this economic climate now... (laughs) It's actually just as risky as if you were to go after the big juicy goals, the ones that you really, really want. You just need the tenacity. In my membership online, oh my gosh, all the passionistas know. It's like, grow up here. You show up. Show up for your life and you tell yourself in the mirror, you tell the world who you are and then you check in with who you're being. Like, Forget the to-do list. Write the to-be list down because who you're being is going to determine the action and the results that stem from your source of who you're being. That's so so great. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But that continuity, that consistency, that day-to-day perseverance, sometimes you don't want to get up and look in the mirror. You don't want to make your to-be list. You just want to go back to bed. How do you overcome those kind of moments? You know, I feel like it's not for me personally. I think those moments where I want to go back to bed 
It depends. Sometimes you have to check in with how much you've worked, how much you've done, what you have on the docket for that day. Sometimes you have to honor yourself and have that respite and not make yourself wrong because humans will do the bare minimum because it keeps them safe. And our machinery as a human being wants to keep our capacity secure and just check in that it's normal. Oh, it's just my machinery wanting me to go back into bed. And if I know that my greater good isn't to go back to bed, I'll just pull out my why. I have it all over my whiteboards. I have it in my mind. I need to check in with the bigger purpose that will pull me out of my fears and out of my procrastination. I think that's a really big one when anybody joins my membership. It's like, sure, you want to do all these things. Forget about it. Why? Because that is what's going to be big enough to counteract your fears. That benefit will outweigh the cost of you staying in bed that day. And then you came to your why sort of organically through these experiences, right? But somebody starting from a different place, how would you encourage them to find their why? Because a lot of people have a passion. They know what sometimes, but they don't know how, but that's another problem entirely when you don't know your why. Yeah. Thank you for the question because I remember this and I learned such a tactic. It really did change my life. This one thing, Jake Ducey, one of my mentors through the years, he said something that really, really stuck with me, which was five, six years ago, I knew I wanted to speak. I was doing television and some red carpet stuff, but I couldn't really anchor in a bigger picture of wanting to change the world or because of my mother's circumstances, I thought maybe it's like homelessness. What is my cause? What is my why? And he said in this morning session, make your why list and then go through it and figure out what actually lights you up and what calls to you. And I have had separate whys throughout my life and it will keep getting bigger. But on that list, he said, don't be afraid to skip solving world hunger and put to take my dad out to the fanciest dinner of his entire life and say, (laughs) thank you. And forever, it was my goal to this family member of ours who, as a a side note for the last story of losing the house, our storage units were then sold across California. Uh And this one family member was at swap meets buying this stuff back for us because she loved us so much. And so one day when we were writing our whys, I thought, oh, so I can take her on these glamorous adventures with me and she loves furniture. And so I wrote down these little things I wanted to do for her that really got me out of bed. And it was way more personal than people think. Like write down a why that is really close to you to begin because that's actually going to motivate you. When I was starting out, I want to motivate and inspire brown girls everywhere to know that they could be in the middle because growing up, it was just the blondes. It was just the white girls. And (laughs) I would not have been able to tell you that five years ago when I was starting out that that's my why. So don't be intimidated by the big whys. Like Maybe it's pick a family member or pick something that really would move you into action and start there. I love that. Start personal. And because the personal is universal in the end. Exactly. Yep. From why to wise. (laughs) Ooh, I love that. (laughs) Oh my gosh. I need to tweet that later. From why to wise. (laughs) 
Erica de la Cruz, it's such a pleasure to talk to you. I really appreciate you taking the time Thank and sharing your story. You and so you. much. Yeah, yeah, it was such a pleasure to meet you. I just love it all. All the like depth and art that's being brought to life. So thank you. To learn more about Erica de la Cruz, the TV host, the best-selling author, the inspirational speaker, the fashionista, go to ericadelacruz.com. That's E-R-I-K-A-D-E-L-A-C-R-U-Z.com. And all the links to her social media are there, and of course, her programs and other ventures. Speaking of other ventures, The Bleed is generously hosted by Transistor.fm, a wonderful platform for hosting your podcast or even a network of podcasts like ours, the Storygram Network. Check us out at Storygram.com. That's Storygram with two M's and an E at the end because we're fancy like that. I'm Daedalus Howell. You can find me at dhowell.com. Otherwise, you can listen to me here at The Bleed.